Al Jazeera podcast. Missiles, drones, and surveillance technology. Nations from around the world are eagerly lining up to get their hands on whatever Israel offers. Israel set a new record in defense exports last year with revenues reaching 12 and a half billion dollars. And Israel is also the leading exporter of spyware technology. With the click of a button, you can bring down nations to their knees very rapidly if you so desire. That's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking at a cybersecurity conference in 2017. He's talking about Pegasus, the Israeli spyware developed by NSO Group. Every system can be hacked. But these technologies are often tested on Palestinians. For example, Amnesty International says that an experimental facial recognition technology called Red Wolf is being used to tighten control in the occupied West Bank. So how has Israel managed to turn the control and surveillance of the Palestinians into a profitable global enterprise of control? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Pegasus is not the only surveillance tool with a made-in-Israel seal on it. Israel has been cited as one of the biggest exporters of cyber and civilian monitoring technologies to countries that include Colombia, India, and Mexico. Our guest today, Anthony Lowenstein, a journalist and the author of the book titled The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of the Occupation Around the World. Anthony, welcome to The Take. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Anthony, why don't we start with a little bit about your background? When did you start reporting on Israel-Palestine and how your views have shifted over time? I'm Jewish, although I'm secular. I don't have a faith particularly, but I call myself a Jewish atheist. And the reason I mention that is that I grew up in Australia in the 1970s. And like really a lot of Jewish families, Israel was not the center of my life, but it certainly was something that you were expected to support. When I was growing up, the views of my family and frankly much of the Jewish establishment was pretty horrible towards Palestinians. It was racism. It was Palestinians are all terrorists. It's us or them. And I first went to Israel-Palestine in 2005. I was researching my first book called My Israel Question, which was a critical look of the conflict. And when I went there, my views then were, I believe, in a two-state solution. In the end, yeah, it was just something that I, my views have evolved. I believe now in one state and I don't support the idea of a Jewish state. So my views have changed, partly through living there. And I guess the reality has hit me that I think it's not sustainable as it currently is. Okay, so let's talk about the book. The central thesis you lay out is that Palestine is the laboratory in which the Israeli defense industry field tests its products. So I'm curious how you came to focus on this particular aspect of the story. I was interested, I guess, in a bigger narrative. In 2015, I released the book Disaster Capitalism. It was about people making money for misery in Afghanistan and various other places for war and conflict and that kind of thing. And as time went on, I started seeing that happening in Israel. The occupation of Palestine is now the longest occupation in modern times. 
and the tools and technologies that Israel uses, drones, spyware, whatever it may be, is then battle-tested, yes, in Palestine, tested on Palestinians, and then, equally importantly, is promoted in marketing material and other forms of PR as effective, Mm. as successful. And no one knows exactly how many countries Israel sold their equipment to, but it's at least 130, which obviously is the majority of nations on the planet. And Israel is now the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world. So they've used a really brutal form of battle testing against an occupied population. But from their perspective, it's kind of been very successful because so many now nations rely on Israeli repressive technology. And you're saying the occupation is the ideal marketing tool for these products? It's a marketing tool because Israel has complete impunity. There's no real international pressure on Israel to change. And therefore, I think they're selling both the weapons and the technology of repression, but it's actually more than that. It's also the idea that you can get away with it. And there are lots of other nations around the world which are much less powerful than Israel that are attracted to that, that like the idea of saying, well, Israel can do this to Palestinians. We also want to repress our minorities, human rights activists, journalists, whoever it may be, and also get away with it. It could also work for us in our own country. Yeah. That's so interesting. You say they're selling not just the technology, but getting away with it. I wonder if, do you feel that that's realistic? Are they selling a dream? I mean, isn't Israel in sort of a unique situation? It's a unique situation historically, obviously, because Israel was founded in the ashes of the Holocaust. That is unique, I guess, by definition. But I think they are selling, not every country, of course, subscribes to this, but of this idea of ethno-nationalism. Israel is the most, inverted commas, successful ethno-nationalist state on the planet, a state that prioritizes Jews over anyone else. If you're not Jewish, you're a second-class citizen. And the nation that I talk a lot about is particularly India. Prime Minister Modi, the current leader of India, there's been almost like a bromance between him and Netanyahu since he became leader in 2014. And it's partly a defense relationship because... India buys heaps of weapons from Israel, but actually it's more than that. It's an ideological alignment. India is openly trying to build a Hindu fundamentalist state. They're not even shy about that. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his far-right Hindu nationalist party, the BJP, are bent on creating a lost Hindu kingdom. They call it the Hindu Rashtra. They've been in office since 2014, openly championing Hindu nationalist supremacist ideology. Scholars are now literally warning about genocide there. They're talking about openly discriminating against non-Hindus, particularly Muslims, of which there's 200 million in India, roughly. And you have Indian officials showing how much they don't just admire Israel, they admire Israel's war against Palestinians, and they also admire the occupation of Palestine because what they're trying to create in Kashmir, which is a Muslim-majority part of India, is to bring in huge numbers of Hindus from the south and to literally settle the land. Now, to be clear... I'm not saying India is doing this solely because of Israel. They're not. But they're inspired. And they openly say that. And I think ethno-nationalist countries, India being the most obvious, of course Israel, Hungary, there are others, are building almost like an unofficial global alliance of like-minded states that do sort of say to the West, we don't want to hear about your human rights. We don't want to hear about the UN. We don't want to hear about any of your sort of wishy-washy views about 
self-determination for minority populations. Strength is what matters. Israel sees itself as almost like a global Sparta. Mm. This kind of strong, powerful nation, they are almost untouchable. And many other nations find that really attractive. How big is the arms industry to Israel's broader economy? And how reliant is this industry on selling to repressive regimes? So Israel just released recently its 2022 arms figures. It was 12.5 billion US, which was the biggest ever. And in the last 10 years, those figures have just skyrocketed. And it's interesting to note that of those 12.5 billion US, 24% were sold to Arab autocracies. A quarter of sales went to countries which normalized ties with Israel under the Abraham Accords. UAVs and drones accounted for the largest proportion of those sales. Saudi, Bahrain, UAE, Morocco, mostly surveillance technology, things like Pegasus, the spyware on people's mobile phones, or drones, and lots of other nations around the world are buying it from Asia and Africa and elsewhere. And Israel, in fact, promotes its arms industry as a key part of its kind of raison d'etre by saying, we are this strong nation, we have fought off these awful Palestinians, it's how they frame it, and we can help other nations do the same thing. And I show in the book over countless examples over decades, how many other nations don't just look to Israel for advice or almost inspiration for their own so-called counterinsurgency against some minority they don't like or some group, whatever it may be. But they also want the tools to do that, the weapons, the spyware, the drones. Now I want to talk about the history. This book does a really good job of putting what's happening now into historical context. You say Israeli history can be split into two eras. There's pre-1967 and post-1967, which is the date of the Six-Day War. You say that's when Israel became the U.S.'s trusted sideman in maintaining the Pax Americana. Um, The book is chock full of history of this partnership with the U.S., selling weapons, in some cases fomenting coups. I'd love to get a whirlwind tour of some of that history. Maybe you could start where the book starts, in Chile. In 1973, in fact, on 9-11 in 1973, there was a coup led by Pinochet, but certainly supported by the U.S. under Kissinger to have a dictatorship and the Chilean regime was a brutal one, lots of people killed. A lot of people will know about the Pinochet regime. What they won't know about is Israel was the key weapons provider to the Pinochet regime, more so than the US even. Mm. And there's so many other examples. I talk about Iran during the Shah before 1979, various other regimes in Honduras, in Colombia, even in Guatemala, which was committing a genocide against their indigenous population. Mm. Israel was providing training to those forces there in the early 80s. Another example I give in the book, which I think is really resonant today, is apartheid South Africa. With Israel and South African apartheid, there was a close relationship. Yes, it was partly about weapons, but it was also really centrally around both countries believed that they were fighting a war against barbarism. That's how they basically defined it. Israel, of course, against Arabs and South African apartheid, white regime against blacks. And they both got inspiration from each other. When Ariel Sharon, the former Israeli prime minister, visited South Africa during apartheid and visited these so-called Bantistans, which are basically kind of black townships in South Africa where people were living in abject poverty. 
and saw that as a model for what he wanted to create in Palestine. That's exactly what is happening now in Palestine. Now, I'm not suggesting it's exactly the same, but a degree of inspiration of what Israeli officials saw in South Africa. So, how did Israel become the number one exporter of spyware and a key global player in the world of cyber warfare? That's after the break. Ava Peron was a woman who beat the odds to become an inspiration to the people of Argentina. While powerful and popular, in hindsight, she was also complicated and controversial. I'm Charles Dance. Follow me as I follow the life of Ava Peron in Al Jazeera's docudrama series, Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking to Anthony Lowenstein about how Israel exports its surveillance technology to other countries after testing them on Palestinians. So, Anthony, you write that the Israelification of the U.S. security services accelerated immediately after 9-11. What do you mean by that? I very much see the U.S. so-called war on terror as being deeply inspired by Israel. And what I mean by that is that so many of the actions the U.S. took after that fateful day, and also the rhetoric, the language that the U.S. was using after 2001, is very inspired by the Israelis. The use of so-called collateral damage, all this kind of language that's become ubiquitous now in much of the Western press, Israel was using it decades before. Particularly, I go back to the Lebanon War in 1992 when Israel invades Lebanon, commits gross human rights abuses, partners with horrible Christian militias, um, the infamous suburb Shatila massacres. The language that Israel was using then, the way that they were demonizing any people in the West who dared criticize them, they were anti-Semitic, how dare you criticize our actions in Lebanon, mm. we're liberating the Lebanese, we're fighting for our existence. It was all nonsense, but that was how they framed it, very similar to the US post 9-11. In some ways, what Israel was saying explicitly and implicitly is, we've been fighting a war on terror for decades. Come to us and we'll show you how to do it. Yeah. Or again, it wasn't solely because of Israel, but it was almost like a mentoring role. And their arms industry, surprisingly enough, soared in the last 20 years. I did want to talk about my favorite chapter in the book, which is the one about mass surveillance. I wonder if you could just talk about how key a player Israel is in this new form of cyber warfare. The spyware industry, I think, is really fascinating because so many of the companies, virtually all of them are veterans of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, and particularly Unit 8200, which spends pretty much 24-7 monitoring all forms of Palestinian life in Palestine. One of the frustrations to me in the last years of so much of the international coverage of Pegasus is it misses a key part. It's often framed as, oh, there's this crazy, rogue Israeli company selling all this spyware to horrible, repressive regimes or Celebrite, another Israeli surveillance company. It's simply not true. Yes, they're selling their technology. That part obviously is true. But these are arms of the state. They're often working as a direct diplomatic carrot for the state. 
An Israeli cybersecurity firm can break into Apple iPhones without user interaction. Pegasus is one of the most powerful bits of spyware ever made. It's easily installed, almost impossible to detect, and even harder to get rid of. In the last 10 or 12 years, Netanyahu as prime minister, the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, goes around the world promoting Israel, promoting, you know, you should be friends with us. We'd like you to um, be closer to us at the UN, vote in certain ways. We will sell you this unbelievably powerful spyware, Pegasus or some other tool, which allows you to do whatever crazy stuff you want to do to your own citizens. And in return, we want you to, as I said, vote in a different way, the UN. And you can see a pattern between when Netanyahu or the Mossad visits certain countries, talking about Rwanda, Hungary, India, many others. Within six or 12 months, Pegasus is being used in that nation. Now, that's not, I guess, 100% evidence, but it's pretty good. Yeah. And it's also been backed up by Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper as well, who's done similar reporting. I think... What Snowden said, they're selling to the countries that desperately crave the tools of oppression but don't have the sophistication to produce them domestically. And maybe that's one of the reasons that this issue over other of arms has sort of taken hold and gained traction in the Western press. Well, it's so attractive also for nations to have this tool, relatively inexpensive, unbelievably powerful, totally unregulated. Mexico, for a variety of reasons, is the biggest user of Israeli spyware in the world. Utterly obsessed with this tool. This mm. is both under right-wing governments and the nominally left-wing government now. Going after dissidents and human rights workers at a time where the death rate for journalists and others is just off the chart. Let's talk about drones. Oh, let's. Yeah. So I read in the book that drones used by Frontex, which is the European Union's border agency, come from Israel. Um, Israeli drones, some of which can fly up to 40 hours at a time, which have been used over Gaza for years, are patrolling the Mediterranean Sea. So how important are these drones to the project of keeping refugees out of Europe? Well, they're vital. And they're unarmed drones. It's important for me to say that. But Europe, I think, made a decision very much after the mass number of migrants who came in 2015 from Syria, Afghanistan and elsewhere, didn't want to repeat that. And they basically built this sort of quasi-fortress Europe now where if you're Ukrainian, white and Christian, they'll welcome you in. But if you're brown or black or African, good luck because there is a huge network of keeping people out. And the EU has made a decision of course, I don't admit this when you ask them, which I have many times. They basically have made a decision to let people drown. Exhausted migrants, many from conflict zones, desperate for a safer life in Europe, finally approach the Greek coast. But they are not welcome. Border guards push them back. Pushbacks are against international refugee protection agreements. And evidence strongly suggests that the EU's border guard agency Frontex was complicit. They have very few rescue boats anymore. They barely allow any NGOs. And what Israel is doing, or the Israeli drones, as you say, which have been battle-tested over Gaza in the last 15 or so years, is uh, they are the eyes in the sky, 24-7. They're flying around the Mediterranean, sending all these images back to the Frontex headquarters in Warsaw, Poland. And then the EU makes a decision. Frontex makes a call. The handful of boats will rescue, and the handful that we won't. There's this surge in the so-called border security industrial complex, mm. which is a desire by many Western states 
Europe, the US, certainly my country, sadly, Australia, of keeping most people out. And how do you do that? You do that through walls or drones or surveillance technology, and that industry is surging. I mean, it's worth tens of billions of dollars a year and it's only going to keep up. But as at the moment, there are more migrants traveling around the world looking for a safe place to live than at any time since World War II. I mean, what's crazy to me as someone who's Jewish is that Israel has basically ghettoized itself in the Middle East with walls around its entire border. Mm. And as a people who were ghettoized for centuries, I just find that gross and so absurd. And they're exporting that idea to many other nations. And I quote finally in the book a few people who have said, Israel, the only way to manage your borders is to follow our model. Mm. They're saying that to the EU very, very clearly and also the US. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. With Miranda Lynn, Faranisa Kampana, Zaina Badr, Amy Walters, David Enders, Sonia Bagat, Chloe K. Lee, and Ashish Malhotra. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.